What's up, gifted family? Welcome to another episode of the show that is the GP YouTube. Just a reminder that if you support what we do here, make sure to go over to giftedperformance.com and sign up for our automated coaching service. For only a dollar a day, you'll get access to 15 highly customized training programs, a macronutrient calculator, our meal planning feature that lets you build and save meals based on your macros, as well as access to our private Facebook group. All subscriptions help us in continuing to put out great content to get you to your fitness goals. Thanks for stopping by, and without any further delay, let's get into today's video. Enjoy. Welcome back, guys. Another episode of the GPP, the Gifted Performance Podcast, where we give you the insight and practical takeaways to improve your own general physical preparedness. Another Q&A episode coming at you. First and foremost, some housekeeping is that you may notice that Cam looks a little different today. He just got back from Mexico. He's quite tan. <laughs> now, Cam has left us the, 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 the four... The four horsemen have and not we we've brought in a new member cam is in mexico contracting what covid syphilis and dysentery the big three as they call it so we brought in our very own the newest member of the gifted performance team jason holt jay how are you i'm doing great I'm great uh it's, it's good to be here is it though like i feel like you might not mean that you don't well, feel I like mean, you have better shit to do maybe <laughs> <laughs> this is this is this is the first time I've ever done a podcast of any sort, so I'm actually really interested in watching myself later and cringing at my own awkwardness. So it's bad. It's bad. Just know, just accept the fact that it's not going to be very good. So yeah, let's give you some, let's give that. you let's give you something to actually cringe at, Jason, because he's new to the podcast, and you know people want to know who he is. Jay, give us a Twitter format, 140 characters or less. I don't even know if those are still the rules of Twitter. Um, Twitter format introduction into who is Jason Holt, the complete meathead, as they call him. Uh, once formerly known, the artist formerly known as the complete meathead. Uh, let's see. Uh, natural bodybuilder, moderate. Pro. Decent, uh, pro. Yeah. What, whatever that means. Uh, I've got a, a stack of professional cards. Uh, I've earned about, you know, $500 being a professional bodybuilder. So I've got that going for me. Uh, barely pays off a portion of the student loans that I have to pay for, you know, the wall full of receipts that I have for uh, education, um, basically in exercise science and all those things. So I, I know how to count to 10 or eight to 12, I think is what we go. Or is it five to 30? It's like, it's like Stay our list. Range. It's like our list of accomplishments are a bunch of worthless things that cost a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> but from the outside looking in, people who don't know any better, they're like, "Wow, these guys so humble, so accomplished. How do they do it?" <laughs> you have four master's degrees in exercise physiology on this podcast right now, and we all hate ourselves for having it. So if that isn't a shining recommendation for higher education, kids, go to college. Remember, Dude, my diploma is still in the envelope. I haven't even opened it. True story. So like a year after I graduated, my diploma came in the mail and it came in one of those like tube things. 
and I look in the trash like a couple days later because I had, yep, that exact thing because I hadn't even opened it yet. And it was in the trash. My beloved Jimmy threw away or attempted to throw away what is allegedly my proudest accomplishment. Allegedly. I don't know. There might be an asterisk next to that. All right, gentlemen, shall we answer some questions? Let's do it. All right. The first question comes from Eddie at Eddie Bobrovsky. I believe he works for Renaissance Periodization or is affiliated with Renaissance Periodization. (laughs) Am I wrong? Am I not right? Okay. So I'm being told I've got my producers in my ear telling me that he does not actually work for RP. Um, But Go check him out. He's got his own coaching page. Uh, Eddie, he asks, how to change your training during a cut, a mini cut, a maintenance, or a bulk? So let's go ahead. Let's just lump the two in the cut, mini cut, so we don't get too um, caught up in semantics there. Unless you guys want to separate that that out. Um, Paul, our training guy who is deep in thought right now, let kick us off here. How would you change training during a cut or a mini cut? So during cut or mini cut, what I, I try to do is almost keep it identical to what I've been doing prior to the cut. And if I feel like I need to, I'll lower uh, training volume a little bit. But most often, I, I don't really feel like I need to. Like, and until you get to a point where, like, maybe you're, if you're in a contest prep and you're getting super lean, maybe. But the biggest thing I'll do is probably at some point when things get really hard and you're low on energy, if somebody's really suffering, is change exercise selection to stuff that is less demanding. So we might swap back squats out that might take like, 30 to 45 minutes to warm up for and do like three to five sets or whatever for like a Smith machine squat, hack squat, or even better yet, leg press. Um, if they're really beat up and just stuff like that, incorporate more machines, um, things that cut down the amount of time that they are in the gym. They could even, you know, I've even had circumstances. I'm not a big fan of mile reps, but I've used stuff like that as well. Um, And I try to honestly keep training in similar rep range, keep training as heavy as it can be. But there there are situations where you might adjust rep range as well. So, yeah. Anyone want to jump in there? This is Paul's department. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, just from the surface, like a mini cuts way too short to change anything, in my opinion. What's a mini cut? And like by your definition, what would you say a mini cut is? What's what's your like what's your cutoff point? I'd say like six weeks, six to six to eight weeks, I think is a good mini cut time. I mean you get really aggressive and do like four, five, like big food pole and like just ride it out. Guys ever uh, seen have you guys ever seen an Australian shepherd? Like like the dog? dog? Yeah. Yeah. Have you guys seen like a mini Australian Shepherd? No, I don't know. I don't believe so. No. Okay. Well, I mean, they exist, so don't come that's, at me. That's the like the story. So like, or like a pig versus like a mini pig, like a, one of those micro pigs. Micro like, pigs aren't what's real. The, Paul, sh- shut up, man. <laughs> Trying to make a point here. No. So the like, pe- <laughs> what's the I'm ratio? Really interesting where this like, goes. 
like what's like how big an Australian Shepherd is versus a mini Australian Shepherd? What's like the ratio? Like, is it like two to one? Like the mini is like half the size? Is it like even smaller? Because I think I think like the micro pig, like that wouldn't be a good example because they're way smaller. But like a mini, like a mini doodle, like a mini poodle, like how like what's the ratio there? And I think that we can use that because dog breeding is like the pinnacle of science. And we can use that to identify what a mini cut is. So like what's a cut like probably 16 to 20 weeks. If we say it's a two to one ratio, a mini cut should be what? Like eight to 10 weeks. Dom, are you following this dog logic? Yeah, I'm, I'm following. <laughs> okay, perfect. I just wanted to interject Honestly, that very salient I, point. I feel like if your diet is eight weeks or longer, eight weeks maybe is kind of like gray area, like right on the line. But I think if your your diet is eight weeks or longer, it's it's just a diet. I wouldn't call it a mini cut at that point. Like I would look at a mini cut as four to four to six, four to eight, maybe. Yeah, I would say eight is probably that like upper limit. I think I'd say eight is the cutoff there. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I mean, are we all in agreement there that in terms of training during a cut, maybe exercise selection, maybe repetitions performed per set is what we would change as opposed to changing like the entire training program as a whole? I think I agree. If you're, yeah, like if you're not doing some like, I want to hit MRV bullshit, like 20, 30 sets a week per fucking body part, like, and you're doing reasonable volumes anyway, in that 10 to 15, 10 to 20 ish, like, there's probably not a fucking need. And honestly, even if you, let's say you're, you're doing stellar training before you started your, your diet or, or your mini cut or whatever, like, let's just say, the wrong thing to do is to keep doing what you're doing. How bad are you going to fuck up your physique in like four, six, eight weeks? Not at all. Not really <laughs> at all. <laughs> Not at all. How about like, uh, and Jay, I'll throw this one to you. How about the like load loading weeks to deloading weeks paradigm? Do you think, cause I've heard that argument made before. Like, you know, if you're in a maintenance phase, you can survive four loading weeks and then you go down to one deload week. Maybe it's, you know, five, five to one, three to one. You hear people throw out these, these numbers. Is that something that, that you would change worry too much about? I don't really like to make a lot of adjustments to training when it comes to any diet, unless it's a contest prep, because usually you, know, you start getting leaner and leaner. You, you know, fat tends to cushion the joints quite a bit. So, I, you know, I might change intensity or relative intensity, maybe um, when somebody gets really lean, like really lean. But for most of this stuff, there's really not a need that I can see to make any adjustments to training really at all. And it's because you're smart, right? It's because we no like seriously why okay I'm starting my diet tomorrow I'm just gonna change everything no you change things when there is some sort of feedback that lets you know like oh shit something should change things are not going well right like if somebody does four weeks of training and it went really fucking well you're like I'm not gonna change anything I'm probably not even gonna like add volume like you're just gonna do this again that was awesome. Like, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think people get a little bit too caught in the weed, caught up, in, caught up in the weeds, the woods. I don't know. Are you I caught up in the weed up. right now? Yeah, not currently. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> but I think people get a little bit too caught up in this stuff, trying to make adjustments. They're like, I'm adjusting my diet. I need to adjust everything else. 
I also think people are really looking for like a rule set of how to make these proactive changes instead of, you know, just sitting back and being reactive as you make your changes. Like Paul said, you've just done, you're on a cut. You believe that, you know, when you are in a calorie deficit, like it should be three weeks up and then one week down for a deload. And you just had three of the, you just had a client that had the three best weeks of training of their entire cut. And you're like, oh, well, shut it down. We got to shut down that progress because the rule is three to one and you would fuck it up. But like Paul said, why, why would you stop? Just, just keep going. Just keep going. Makes more sense. I actually experience uh, a lot of times I'll find myself when I diet, even though my my rate of adaptation will slow down, right? So I'll get stronger slower, but the frequency that I feel like I need a deload actually extends at a certain point. And it's probably because I'm way too fat <laughs> by the time I decide to start cut, cutting. So like, there's probably a, a component of me getting healthy, starting to do more activity and cardio. So um increasing my level of fitness, probably sleeping better because I sleep like a fucking bulldog when I have like all this body fat on me. And, uh, I witnessed, you know, maybe even because of the rate of adaptation or that that's one thing I'll kind of do with my own training going into a diet. I go, I will go ahead and, uh, do smaller load jumps because I know at some point it's going to hit me anyway. So like, let's milk this. And, um, maybe that extends my recovery a little bit as well. Yeah, I would agree. All right, Eddie, hopefully we answered your question. The answer for maintenance and bulk is going to be probably around the same thing. Maintenance, you know, we take the same approach to training, more of a reactive approach and same thing for bulking. Yeah. The one thing I would say uh, while, while in a caloric surplus, that that may be a good time to uh, change training a little if your desire is to specialize in a certain body part. So like that's where you might say, hey, let's let's try some more volume or let's try a different frequency split or something like that. How about exercise selection for enhanced individuals on a bulk in terms of dealing with some of the side effects that you may run into when you're enhanced? I, I really I'm glad you asked that, dude. I thought I'd never get to talk about that on a podcast. I got you. I got you. Man. Um, so actually, there there are points um, similar to how I said we, we might pick exercises that deliver a little less systemic stress and are just easier to get through a workout with like while dieting with uh, some enhanced guys, I'll do the same thing because the rate of adaptation is going to be a lot faster. Um, so you're lifting heavier poundages, you know, faster and you're, you're hitting probably like new all time levels of strength. Um, and in, in addition to that, you're gaining weight probably more rapidly. And a lot of guys, honestly, when they're enhanced, probably try to gain too much weight too fast. So end up putting on a good bit of body fat. So fitness goes down. And uh, yeah, so you, uh, you just may find like even with something as simple as a dumbbell incline press, that lugging super heavy dumbbells around and getting them up into position becomes a pain in the ass. You get pumps easier when you're enhanced, especially if you put on a little too much body weight. So like you may find like, oh, my God, like the, these incline presses before I even get them up. This is a pain in the ass because I have forearm pumps, you know, lower back pumps can be an issue. So back squat and deadlifts may not even be a good idea 
already deadlifts probably not even a great idea for a natural bodybuilder better selections but uh yeah man so a lot of it's just centered around that just that that extra fatigue and decreased fitness gaining weight rapidly gaining strength rapidly and uh you know decreasing those warm-up times and being a little more efficient sometimes as well and you can hear more about that on Paul's Patreon that he hasn't started yet that I'm going to start for him as soon as we hang up this call. Go over to Paul's Patreon and you can ask any questions that you'd like for, I don't know, some nominal fee per month. And he will answer all of them all about your enhanced oh, needs. One more thing I want to add to that Do because it. there's a certain coaching group where I believe I could be mistaken, but they actually like to use the opposite of a uh, – like linear block. So rather rep ranges increase over training blocks. Um, and they sort of sell this to or try and market it towards naturals. But I actually, without just by default, a lot of the times when I train enhanced individuals, it just ends up looking that way. Because let's say you start off a training block with uh, like sets of eight, and then you hit an 11 or 12 rep PR or whatever at the end of that phase. Well, you're not going to be like, all right, let's do sixes now. Like you may do eights again. And, and a lot of times without really trying, let's say over a 16 week course, we may start with uh, six or eight rep uh, sets, but end up doing 10, 12, maybe even sometimes more because like I said, those, those poundages are becoming so high. It's like if we're doing, how do I say this? Basically, it's sort of like a, a what is it? Like joint integrity kind of issue. Does that make sense? Working in higher rep ranges as they get really strong? Yeah. Yeah, that makes more sense. It's it just increasing the rep ranges serves as like an artificial limiter to how much weight they can actually put on the bar. Where if you that. do the, <laughs> where, where if you do the reverse of that, you're actually putting yourself at greater risk because the loads. So as you kind of accrue fatigue on that exercise over months, and then you add on the fact that you're doing lower reps and increasing the weight, you kind of have two kind of yeah. sources of fatigue really butting heads with each other. And I can see that working uh, because yeah, not over, in your favor. Like over like four months, somebody increases their bench press 80 pounds. You know what I mean? You're like, fuck. <laughs> yeah. I think from a hypertrophy stimulus standpoint, you'd probably be better off, you know, where you started on bench press for sets of six. If four months later you're working in the 12 to 15 repetition range with that same load or, you know, plus or minus five to 10 pounds of that load, that, in my opinion, is probably a better indicator that the individual has made like hypertrophic progress as opposed to just neural progress. Cause if you work in the opposite direction, y you could attribute a lot of those strength gains to neural adaptations as opposed to just laying down new contractile tissue, tissue, tissue. All right. PSA, PSA time. Before we go on to the next question, the next motherfucker that calls their muscle tissue and thinks that they are fancy <laughs> on the internet is getting one poly rocket slap right to the face. It's going to be open hand. So it's not a hate crime. You heard it here first. Paul, can you verify? I can verify, verify. All right. The next question comes from friend of the channel, Mr. Omar Rivera at the underscore Omar Rivera. Omar asks, do you guys use maintenance phases? 
slash do you think they are a good idea? So before we start, I would say I would recommend that you well finish watching this video. You know, got to get get those views, get the algorithm on our side. Um, but when you do finish this video, go over to our episode, our second episode with Broderick Chavez, where he talks a lot about modern periodization and how the roots of modern periodization actually come from enhanced individuals in uh, around the, the USSR, those kind of Eastern Bloc countries way back in the day. But a different topic for a different day. Maintenance phases. So defining, I'll try and define a maintenance phase as best as I can. Um, and I'll let you guys see if you agree, disagree, or have anything to add. So a maintenance phase, from my interpretation, um, is an intentional ceasing of whatever direction you are moving in. So whether that be muscle gain or fat loss in an attempt to establish your current position as the baseline. So I stop my fat loss phase after 15 pounds. I increase my calories closer to what is my new body weight adjusted maintenance. I hold that for a couple weeks and then I start another fat loss phase or a muscle gaining maintenance phase might be I'm up 10 pounds. I'm going to lower my volume, bring my calories down a touch, just try and maintain my weight before I then increase my volume again because I'm now quote unquote sensitized to more training, whatever that means. Would you guys agree, disagree, anything to add to that? So we're talking about just from the diet aspect, not training aspect. Um, I guess we can, I guess we can hit it from both angles. Yeah. I agree with you. Okay. Yeah, I agree. That, I makes, agree me, that makes me feel better about myself. <laughs> I agree. That's, that's it. End the podcast right there. They all agree <laughs> with me and I am the best. Can, can, can I interject here for a second? So I, I know guess. that's, I, I know that's sort of, uh, there's a lot of, I guess adding complexity to training when it comes to bodybuilding. And I feel like that's one of those new things is the maintenance phase, especially in the natural community, because we, we love to add complexity to everything because we're trying to figure out ways to make, I guess, to extend the time until we hit that wall in which this is it. That's as much as we're ever going to grow. You're already growing, growing slow as shit. Why not grow less slower? (laughs) So, I mean, and no offense to my fellow natural bodybuilders. I love all of you guys. We're in the same grind together. But here's the thing. If you add in a maintenance phase towards basically an inevitable point that's coming, it's coming for everybody. I hate to break it to you. But if you kind of interject a, a time in which you don't make any progress, you're just slowing down the time in which eventually you could be your possible best. And that's just the way that's my own. I'm jumping off my uh, my soapbox here. I'm done with that. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. It's like that there, there is that inevitable point and you're tr- everyone's trying to get there to that point. But they're like, let's make it take a little bit longer. It's that asshole on the road trip where you're like, let's just get to our destination. And they're like, no, let's stop at the world's largest ball of yarn. Like, no, I don't want to look at the ball of yarn. I want to go to the Grand Canyon, damn it. Yeah. But can I, uh, I post a question to the fellas here? So let's just say that somebody's really, really banged up, you know, like, because we all kind of know that, you know, wanted to bring that up. joint adaptations are quite a bit different than muscular adaptations. So if somebody is so banged up to the point where they're just like, I can't do anything and, you know, their performance is starting to decline greatly. Will we even call that a maintenance phase or just like maybe you should stay out of the gym for a little bit and do something else for a while? 
So, yeah, I, I wanted to bring that up at a certain point about like maintenance phase training. And I think like that could be an arguable circumstance where you you employ a maintenance phase or a low volume phase and uh, maybe even mostly focused around rehabbing injury or something like that. Um, but I think the biggest thing from there is not so maybe you need that maintenance phase but you also need to look at training in general probably and be like how do we not get back to this <laughs> yeah how do we not need this maintenance answer. phase <laughs> that should be the conversation is like how because because hypertrophy training at its core shouldn't be injurious and if it is it's likely that you're doing something wrong right like what are the, the biggest causes of injury from just standard resistance training with hypertrophy as the pursuit? It's, I mean, it's overuse. It's like, okay, so you're doing too much. So yeah, maybe you take that maintenance phase, but more importantly, you reassess why you got in this sh shitty situation to begin with. Yeah. I think, uh, or did you want to say anything, Dom? I don't want to hog it. <laughs> no, I was just going to say like, can't you, you could probably employ like, uh, like those active rest phases where like you train like low volume, like five RIR for a while. So like the person like is doing enough to keep their tissue, but like they're not going to see progression or anything like that. He said it. Oh, Paul, tissue. Get him. Get him, <laughs> Paul. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I think, uh, like training wise, I, I, I want to get into diet stuff at some point too, but training wise, one, I will use maintenance phase actually phases actually with some people. Um, one circumstance would be enhanced individuals when they're cruising. And that was something that Tom and I talked about how maintenance doses are, or maintenance training is for maintenance doses where you already know you're probably not in a circumstance to grow much. Why kill yourself with volume and why kill yourself? Like, um, Rather, make sure your body's healthy and you're psychologically ready um, to, by the time you get into the point where you are ready to make gains and, you know, you're doing your enhanced thing or whatever. But also, post-show, sometimes, like when people, they, they just come out of a show um, and they've been giving it their all. Or maybe I have just been destroying somebody with volume for... Um, you know, we've been trying to bring up a body part and or like we're getting into a point where we, we are about to we know we're about to give it their all, whether they want it or not. I'm like, eh, let me just throw less volume at you, like give you a little less time in the gym so that, you know, three months from now, you're like, dude, I feel like the gym has been my life like an hour and a half, two hours a day or whatever, like lose the urge to train because I've been yeah. doing that for nine months, yeah. two years straight. I was going to say post-show, it's probably really beneficial. Like, just because, like, people are just taxed after a show, all that time spent in the gym. Also, uh, something to throw in there, even though you're intentionally targeting lower volumes that we would call, like, maintenance volume, um it may not actually be maintenance volume at that point anyway, because they could be growing from it. So yeah, a lot of times when I say maintenance phase, I, I just mean lower volume. It may not actually be, we, it, it's not like we're not trying to progress at all. We're yeah. just trying to give some other things a break. 
I'm glad you said that. That was something that I was going to add was like these quote unquote maintenance phases can be turned into a phase where you're still making progress by just shifting the focus of training away from where you were before, whether that's by using a different repetition amount, different volume amounts, different exercise selection. If I take someone who's really beat up and I switch all of their exercises out, I can decrease the amount of sets and reps, the total volume that they're doing, and they can still get a stimulus to grow just because of all the, the new exercises, the novelty that you've then kind of injected into the system there. Yeah. At least that's what I think would happen. I want to throw something uh, else in here too, is is that I think it's a good idea sometimes to play with lower volumes too. And, uh, you know, the sort of, I'll just say like RP method of try, doing different volume amounts over time. Um even though maybe it doesn't fit their reason why, I still think sometimes it's a good idea. And as you evolve as a, as a lifter too, and uh, you know, because you may find that maybe you get better at picking movements that work a little better for you or place better stress on like target uh, muscles, or you get better at form and technique. And maybe over time you find out, you know, by playing with different volumes and doing these low volume phases, like, oh shit, I don't need as much volume as I thought I needed to grow. Yeah. And you might find that that additional volume was just extra time spent in the gym, extra fatigue that you actually didn't even need. So the example, and I'll use a person who lives with me that I'm engaged to that will remain unnamed, remain <laughs> unnamed. So we don't don't know who that is. Could be literally could be anyone. Could be Reptar. Um, who, it could be Reptar. Might be Reptar. Hey, good boy. He's sleeping. Um, so during a certain time of the month that none of us experience, um, there is a, a certain amount of accepted pain at that part of the month. And the norm for her was to take upwards of four to five Advil in one dose. And I said, hey, you know, like maybe two is enough. Maybe one or two is enough and four or five might be overkill. And she came back to me and she said, you know what? The two it did the trick. So like the same thing can be said about your your volume. Like you're like, oh, well, I need five sets to, of squats to grow. It's like, well, you have, have you tried two? Well, no, why the fuck would I ever try two? That's way too little. Well, how do you know it's too little if you've never tried it? So yeah, like Paul said, maybe there's a time of the year where you're, you know, your hypertrophy goals aren't on the front burner and you want to kind of take it easy a little bit and you try out, you know, two sets of these movements instead of five. And you're like, oh, wow, I actually feel pretty good. I'm progressing nicely. I, you know, I'm actually gaining pretty well here. Exactly. I like it, Paul. I love it, Paul. Um, how about from the nutrition side of things, nutritional maintenance phases? I, uh, so I don't mind talking on this one real quick. Um, I think I used to think it was really, really kind of dumb <laughs> to be like, all right, like we finished bulking. We, we should like do a maintenance phase and make sure we've held this tissue for a while, um, to, before we diet. But you know, there, one, is there any research there? Like genuine question here. Cause I, I haven't so like, tissue there, permanence. There's like, uh, like oh, one I study. It, guys, I said it. Huh? I did it. I said it. Oh man. Now I got to get slapped too. Oh. <laughs> there. Uh, so it, this study doesn't 
really uh, that like their diet's not a part of it. So we don't know that if these individuals went on a diet, if they wouldn't have made the same progress. And it's literally one study, but there is one study to suggest that there may be a delayed hypertrophy response after uh, a hard training period. So I can't remember the time frame. It was like 10 or 20 days where they saw their their largest increase in CSA, I believe, once they stopped their training. So like that's really interesting because, you know, like I said, we don't know if they would have went on a diet if they if that wouldn't have happened. But it lets us know, like, hey, there's the training stimulus that we got this week, the last four weeks, the last 10 weeks, like we could still be growing from that. So why not try and keep food in like an optimal place? So that it just in case, you know, we 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 sort of milk that right. Yes. Before going straight into a diet. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't think of it that way. Jay, anything to add? No, no, I think that's all good stuff. I think from the fat loss side of things, if we if we switch it over from muscle gain to fat loss, I think there's probably a good amount of solid. Yeah, kind of like thought that could go into, you know, maintaining after a fat loss phase. So someone who has, you know, 200 pounds to lose, the research would support that that 200 pounds in one effort is probably not the best way to keep it off. The best way to keep it off maybe to incrementally. And that's not only from the physiological side of things, reversing some of the hormonal adaptations, the metabolic adaptations that go on during a fat loss phase. But also from like a habit setting phase, like and curse him. But Lane Norton always says um, like America doesn't have like a fat loss problem. We're great at weight loss, really good at it. We have a weight maintenance problem. So like like putting those maintenance phases in there and teaching someone, all right, you just lost this weight. We're not going to go back to those old habits and gain a bunch of weight back. We're just going to learn for the next two months how to maintain this new body weight. So what are the habits on a day-to-day basis that go into you were 300 pounds? How do we maintain 250? All right. When 250 is our new baseline, I can maintain that without much effort. Let's go ahead and let's set our sights on 200. When you get to 200, you then kind of reestablish. So the benchmark that I use is 10% of body weight. So I like people to lose like 10 to 15% of their body weight. Maintain. Show me that you can maintain for, you know, at least 50% of the duration of the fat loss phase. And then we'll kind of go back into that next fat loss phase. I also find that it really motivates people going into that fat loss phase. They're like, man, I really need to crush this maintenance phase, give it my best effort so that I can get back into fat loss as fast as I possibly can. So a little bit of Jedi mind tricks there as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, even just thinking from a duration component of like, if you have more than 50 pounds to lose, like that probably will take you like a year. So you definitely don't want to do that in one go. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That long diet duration just absolutely kills people. And then they get out of it and they're like, wow, hell yeah. All right, Omar, hopefully we answered your question. You ask a lot of questions, man. They're all good questions. So I'm sure we might see you on another episode. The next one comes from Mr. Not Clark Kent, Clark Plant. Did he say his last name? I think so. We're going to call that close enough. Um, at Mick Grizzle 3K. A great name. 
Uh, what are some bro science aspects that you still incorporate, if any? So training wise, nutrition wise, um, what are those kind of like bro science aspects that you still use? Here, I'll I'll, uh, I'll pitch one up here, Mr. Bro Science. Need an example, right? Uh, eating the same thing every day is optimal for your results. Is that a yes or a no? I'd say uh, it's useful, and especially in certain time frames, like probably most useful while dieting and still useful while gaining, but, you know, probably can afford to have a little more variety during a gaining phase. It's a strange statement to me, right? Like, it's very... Yeah. Like it needs yeah, a couple absolutely. more qualifiers in there because like eating the same thing every day is like, okay, half dozen Twinkies, breakfast, <laughs> lunch, and dinner. I eat that every single day. That's for sure not optimal for my results. Like when I was in, when I was in college, I, I met a girl who was contest prepping and every day for 16 weeks, she ate four meals and it was four ounces of boiled chicken. Like that's it. No vegetables, no grains, no carbs, nothing. Like that's for sure not optimal. So like Paul said, I think that like by limiting the amount of variability in the diet during a fat loss phase, you make it psychologically a little bit easier. But if we dive a, like a couple of layers deeper to like, what do we actually mean by optimal? Are we looking at the health of the individual? Because then you can start to poke out, a lot of holes. <laughs> I think we're looking out for one, the coach <laughs> and uh, being able to like make changes and have that consistency. So like the way I would think of it uh, as is the the points that is probably very or on the higher end of spectrum of optimal when we have the least margin for error. Right. Contest prep, like smallest margin of error closer to that show margin gets smaller regular diet still small but not as small as that surplus as long as you're not like doing crazy stuff and getting way too fat that's where we have we have the most margin for error and you know it's still a tool but i don't it, in some ways it may actually be less optimal too so do you think it's crucial to maximizing your potential I don't think it's crucial, but I do think I, I, it has certain benefits. Like when you know exactly what you're eating every day, like um, and, and another benefit is even if you're tracking your macros wrong, like at least it's consistent, you know? Yeah. So um, I, I, I think that it is the it, it makes it easier for an individual or a coach to make changes based off of their results, for sure. <laughs> It sounds like one of those like wannabe hardcore statements that people make and they like post it on their story and then like 10 of their clients like screenshot it and they share it on their story and they're like, hell yeah, man, like this is the dedication that it takes, brother. Same shit every day. I'm a machine. I don't eat for pleasure. Food is fuel. And it's like, well, like a year from now, we're going to be having a conversation about that eating disorder that you have. It's it's a it's a statement that gives me more questions than answers there. Dom, yeah. I'm, I'm mad that you asked it. There's a lot of holes in it, like you guys said micronutrients all that kind of stuff like you don't know what they're eating every day and 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 some of those 
some of the plans I've seen where it is the same thing every day lack a lot of micronutrients. Like you said, boiled chicken a bunch of times, but like they're giving them like three ounces of spinach with like four ounces of chicken and like a little bit of rice. Like you're missing a lot of micronutrients there. Like I don't think, I don't, I, even up to peak week, I'll let people swap potatoes for rice or swap like oats for cream of rice or just things like that. Just, I think it gets them through it easier. And like they uh, just having a little bit of, a little bit of change. It's not so much change where it's going to throw off a lot, but you know, it's a hundred calories of rice versus a hundred calories of potatoes. Are we really talking about that big of a difference? Probably not. You know, the potato is going to have more micronutrients on the rice, but like, I don't know. I think it's, uh, I think if anything, psychologically, it could ruin a competitor. Like the ones that aren't mentally there to just do that constantly. I think it's a, I think it's a good way to get them to just stop prep because they can't handle it anymore. That's or, my opinion. On it. I, I think uh, a lot of the issue comes less during that prep, but if they try to keep that up after prep, and then yeah. they go into their next competition the next year and try and keep it up. Next thing you know, it's been two or three years, and now they're just completely unable to stick to a diet. Yeah. Or develop some sort of binge eating disorder when they do have their treat. Jay, do you have anything to add? I have a borderline tangentially related rant. Oh, I have a rant um, for you guys. <laughs> um, I think... I'm kind of, I mean, no offense to this fellow that asked the question, but I think it's interesting that the term bro science is even really still around. I mean, I, I've done the Pop-Tart contest prep, because so I remember when we were all being flooded with a ton of information and we're like, I need to DUP all the things, and I also need to count macros of Pop-Tarts to make it through this contest prep. Um, so I remember those days, and I think, luckily, the industry has kind of, sort of morphed into this idea of, you know, eating nutrient dense foods is probably the thing to do, regardless of where you are in your contest or diet or just contest diet or just in general. Um, so I think it's kind of interesting that it still kind of exists, this term bro science, because I thought I was hoping that we kind of gotten away from that. I mean, I, I typically like people to eat not necessarily the same foods, but at least similar foods. So that way I know how their body reacts to certain things. So if they make some sort of weird, drastic change, um, you know, I was at a fellow that was eating, he was eating, I think, jasmine rice at some point in time. And then he decided he was going to switch to, uh, it wasn't rice. It was, uh, now I can't think of it, but he had switched to something else. And, you know, it caused him to sort of have a weird filmy look. And so we had to kind of, as soon as we took that out, he went right back to the way he was looking before. So sometimes it could make a difference, but for most people, it probably it's somewhere in the middle as much as I hate to say that because that's what we always say, but it's probably somewhere in the middle, like move your foods around a little bit, but then also have quite a bit of structure so that you, you know, the things that work. So. Yeah. So can you ask the question again? There was a piece in there that was about um, your you have potential. To the same, you have to eat the same thing every day or you're hurting your maximum potential. Okay. So like your maximum potential like probably starts to develop what when you're like very early on, right? Like when you're like, 
you know, first getting into physical activities. So like seven, eight, nine years old. So let's let's run a thought experiment where seven, eight, nine year olds, you know, we tell them like, hey, guys, it's time to start eating the same thing every day. Or when you're 31 years old and you're getting interviewed on a podcast, you're not going to be at your potential. Like my food choices from when I was nine, I was more on the Paul side, the Hot Pockets, big ham and cheddar Hot Pocket guy. Now, I'm just like a weird psychopath that eats muscle egg for every meal. Like, and I'm still, you can look at me, I am the epitome of ultimate potential right here. I have reached it. I have ascended beyond almost everyone that I know. Actually, let's let's take that. I'll say everyone that I know. I am the ultimate potential and my food choices have changed. So myth has been debunked. Paul, you had a rant. And then we're going to actually ask the answer the question. So just about bro science stuff in general, like the thing is like usually or not in every case, but a lot of times when it comes to bro science, it's stuff that works. Just people don't know why it fucking works. So they make up stupid fucking reasons as to why it works. And like, they also will oversimplify it to the point where it becomes like, in some ways more complex and like, they make it seem like, okay, we can't deviate from this at all or else like from any of these like unnecessarily tiny, very specific details of whatever it is. But then like, if you do understand the science or the mechanisms and the reason why you realize how like, it's very simple in a different way. And we, you may actually, all these tiny details and stuff, you actually have a much larger margin for it. You know, does that make sense in terms of like, Oh, you got to eat this way to lose fat. This is the best way to lose fat. And it's a very specific diet. And it's like, yeah, that works. But really the reason why was the, the total caloric, um, energy balance or whatever. And so, you know, oh, we can actually deviate from this diet in, in, in large amounts in very different ways and eat a lot of very different foods. But like that underlying mechanism that was true under it all, like still stays intact. I think it's a conversation, again, of understanding principles and then being able to dissect methods. And I think that's why I'm going to title my first book, The Principles Will Set You Free. Because it's like this endless, painful, this is going to be funny to say, this painful mental masturbation. Just think about that. Let that thought marinate in your head a little bit. This painful mental masturbation that people do where they obsess over the details endlessly, can they can be set free by just understanding the principles. Like you said, it's like you can end the what diet is best debate as soon as you understand calorie balance or energy balance. It's like as soon as you understand that basic physics principle, you the methods all make sense. It's like it's like those very simple like meme infographics that people post where it's like keto, does it work? Yes. Why? energy deficit and they just go down the list of diets and they just do that over and over it's like a, a, a meme format of like just understand the principle and then the method makes perfect perfect sense to you all right well, let's get into some bro science that we still incorporate things that might be termed bro science that we still incorporate dom um 
Uh, I don't know. Actually, like, no, this... I want to start. I know I want to start because Dom's going to pick pick one that I only have like a couple and I, I need to say mine first before they get stolen or it's going to come back around to me. And I'm gonna be like, uh, I'll, like uh, vegetables are good or I'm going to have like have to say some stupid <laughs> shit. Um, all right. Uh, so bro science thing that I still use with my bodybuilders. If you want to do fasted cardio, go for it. <laughs> yes. Yes. I fucking knew it. He was going to say it. Fuck you, Dom. Fasted cardio. Does it offer any benefit? No. But what benefit uh, in terms of additional fat loss? No. Um, over the long term. But what it does is it fits a lot of people's schedule. So these low, these low intensity cardio sessions that can kind of be knocked out first thing in the morning, whether that's, you know, before work, uh, whatever it may be. Um, really good. They fit people's schedule. Dom, eat my butt. I'm done. Next, done. Paul. That's the only one he had. <laughs> well, I am bro science. Like if bro science was a meme, it would just be a picture of me. So <laughs> everything I do can be considered bro science. That, that can be a t-shirt. We're going to make that into a shirt. That like galaxy. We're going to put that like galaxy picture of your face on a, on a tie dye shirt. And it's just going to say like bro science and like, like crazy, bro. like tubular font. Like yeah, bro science. And it's just Paul. <laughs> I don't have a serious thing. I don't know, man. I fuck. I haven't thought about bro science. You know, I mean, I, I will. Um, what are some bro science things? Yeah, like I'll put some failure. Do you have your clients trained to failure? Yeah, I do. Boom. Uh, sometimes. And what? Okay. <laughs> uh, I'll put me, people on meal plans sometimes. <gasps> yeah. Bad coach. Hashtag bad coach. <laughs> <laughs> Jay? I put everybody on meal plans. <laughs> Hashtag bad coach. <laughs> so, like, uh, why do you choose, Dom, why do you choose, like, a meal plan? Like, why is why is that an option that you use? I heard that that was the worst thing ever and that you're just giving people eating disorders by, like, the hundreds of thousands. Well, I, I, I don't know. I, I want to say meal. It is a meal plan, but, like, I give, like, six, seven options for everything that they can pick from. So like it's like uh, track your food, but with these options only. And why do so you? So it's use like that? I think it gives them structure better. I think they just like you know it's nice to have like okay these are my meals for the day. I can mix these up how I want still. So there's still a good amount of variety, but then they have the structure of just like okay my food's made for the day. It's packed in the fridge. This is what I got to do. But then if they want to eat a completely different diet, they just you know, choose different options and prep different options. And then they're fine like that. And then, um, you know, if, if the client's been with me for a while, then I'll start working them into just tracking their food and let them start tracking. But I've always liked meal plans. I mean, the way I was taught and brought up was through meal plans. And yeah, I'd say 95% of my clients have meal plans. Like you said, they're really for they serve as a pretty good like educational tool as well for like the people who genuinely have no idea what like healthy food choices are. Oh whoa! Hey whoa! Hey whoa! Whose internet was that that went out? Was that Dom? Dom froze. My, uh, but Jay was still moving. My, my I was. Oh, I was saying something about education. I don't know. I'd rather hear what Jay has to say. Jay, bro, science. Let's hear about it. 
Uh, let's see. I still eat chicken and rice because I'm genetically predisposed to liking chicken. So that's oh my god, reason. cut that out! So it's 2021. That's Jesus, that's where, that's where I, I stand on that. Most of my meals too, man. There it is. Oh, that's a fucking lie. So true story. Paul sent me a picture the other day. He was eating white rice with like hot Cheetos mixed in. I'm not even kidding. It's delicious. Yeah, it was. <laughs> oh, good god. Sick human being. All right, Jay, aside from chicken and rice, what other kind of bro science permeates your current lifestyle or the lifestyle of your clients? Uh, I don't even know if I'd really consider it bro science. I like, like Dom said, like I will occasionally give someone, not even really occasionally, but I will give them sort of meal suggestions, hashtag scope of practice. Um, so I will, <laughs> I will give people, you know, here are the things that I would suggest if I were in your situation, um, I will do that sort of give them because if most people, especially in you know, your lifestyle clientele, they don't really know what a meal is supposed to look like. So I will give them, you know, here's an idea of what a meal looks like. So try this out and then I'll give them sort of a number of options. And I think that tends to help them make the better decision. Um, yeah, I don't even know if I'd really consider that bro science. I mean, it's uh, it's just giving someone an appropriate path in which to follow really at the end of the day. Yeah. But I again, think if, if you're on if you're in the business of health promotion, it's like you can give someone macros and they might fill those macros with, you know, supreme pizza and whey protein shakes. But you're the good coach compared to the bad coach that was like, hey, you know, let's eat some lean proteins. Let's eat some fruits and some veggies. Here are some options. And I'm going to organize it all into a meal plan. And jaws just absolutely drop. You what? Because I mean, disorders. I don't know about you guys, but when I make a meal plan, I'm like, okay, let's be responsible about this. And I look at the meal plan, and I'm like, this is better than I eat. <laughs> like for sure, I'm like, I made sure you had a fruit and a veggie at every single meal. Like, <laughs> yeah, I like that. All right, Clark, there's your bro science answers. Turns out. The four of us are hashtag bad coaches. All right. We are going to end on a question that does my favorite thing. Makes Paul mad. Paul, at the underscore real fit, fitnesser, fitnesser, fit, 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 neezer, fit, neezer, like a fit geezer, but like fit, neezer. I don't know. You got a, you got a crazy Instagram name, but I like it. Um, he asks, or she, I don't know who, the, I, I didn't check into this person, so, you know, could be anything. Uh, what's one underrated sup supplement, ooh, such hip slang with the abreves, uh, that most BB bodybuilders neglect? So an underrated sup that most bodybuilders neglect. I think it's got to be creatine, right, Paul? It has to be creatine. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> Fuck creatine. <laughs> Paul, what is it? Uh, man, dude, fuck this question. Like, I'm going to go vitamin D just because I don't think I've ever gotten blood work from somebody that had their vitamin D on it that it wasn't like fucking 30. Or yeah. less. Specifically, what form of vitamin D? D3. What dosages would you recommend? That's a tough one, man. Um, because 
So I probably like long term two to four thousand IU, but like you can take more. And there's actually a strategy where you take like something like ten to twenty thousand IU for some period of time, like a week straight, get the levels high, and then taper down to just two thousand IU a day. Yeah. Um, I read actually had an analysis on vitamin D three and doses, and like they did the bolus thing like that. They gave like a hundred thousand IUs in one day. And then just like didn't take anything for like a couple, like a month or two, and then reintroduced like a thousand. But they had like four different treatment groups, and they found that the ones that take it every day, like two thousand, had a better like uh, stable level of vitamin D. Makes sense. I know. Uh, when I was in the army, a doctor actually increased my vitamin D and pres- I actually had it like prescribed to me, like went to the pharmacy for vitamin D. But um, like, I think that's what I did. I think I did 10,000 IU for a week or two straight and then dropped it to like 2000. I think Correct the, me if I'm uh, wrong, be- because vitamin D is a fat soluble vitamin, you should be able to take a lot of it at once and then be good for like a sustained period of time just because of yeah your body will hang out it'll hang on to some of it i wonder and i've never looked at this i wonder if like you could do the same thing with like sun exposure like i I saw i think it was jack rayner who we've had on the podcast i think jack was talking about like periodizing his d3 just because of kind of the way sunshine works or doesn't work over in the UK where he lives, where they'll get like months at a time of like absolutely no sunshine. And then when it's a little sunnier and he's going for his walks, he'll actually taper down his D3 dose because he's getting some from the sun. No, it absolutely makes sense. I mean, I would even say like if you are really fucking pale like him <laughs> or yeah. um, you uh do go outside a decent amount when it is sunny like maybe you just don't even take it throughout those months because there's a there's a skin tone and a race component to d3 absorption as well right i forget which way it goes yeah so people that are uh my nubian brothers and sisters we need typically a little bit more uh d3 just because we're blessed with this skin that sort of you know the sun doesn't react with our skin or we our skin is so magical that the sun's rays just kind of bounce off of it so we need a little bit more because when we go outside we just don't get as much d vitamin d from the sun so we need so typically if i have a client that's darker darker complected is that a word complected i'm gonna use it in this situation i'm gonna use it it. um if if they're (laughs) if they're darker complected i may bump that recommendation up just a little bit uh just to sort of negate the amount of uh vitamin d that their skin sort of reflects naturally that makes sense yeah so okay he's asking uh, most bodybuilders do most bodybuilders even take health subs <laughs> this guy's Trend, probably talking does about like, count? we're not allowed to talk about that <laughs> um, <laughs> he's probably it's, talking it's, about there, like, there are two sides of the spectrum i think there's some individuals that go a little too crazy with the supplements and take like <laughs> liver, kidney, health, heart support all year, whether they're natural or enhanced. And then there are guys that are like, eh, supplements. I'm like more of the supplements kind of like if you need them, like make sure you need them first. (laughs) Are you making fun of me? Yes, 100%. Talk about milk thistle one more time. And I'm going to fly my ass up to Michigan if that's even allowed at this time with the the current rules. And we're going to wrestle. (laughs) 
I want to make sure your kidney's barely hanging on before before we do anything. Last time I checked, God was gracious enough to give you two of them. So yeah. why are you so picky about having both that work at the same time? And our liver out. has superpowers like Wolverine, so. Exactly. I heard something about how a liver is like a starfish. It can regenerate. So pounding orals and shots of tequila at the same time until the day I die, which might be sooner rather than later. So He's I actually joking, have everybody 100 <laughs> percent joking. Don't do any of those things at all. Period. End of story. Disclaimer in the description to this video. Uh, we are not medical professionals. We do not pretend to be medical professionals. That's Dr. Mike Taylor. Mike, we love you. He's our pretend medical professional. And I can say that because he'll admit to it. Called himself a fake doctor of the day. Um, but I have an interesting take here and it kind of goes off what Paul says. I think that most bodybuilders actually overrate supplements in terms of the effect that it's going to have on your, whether it be performance, um, muscular hypertrophy, basically we'll just lump it all under adaptation to training. I think when we get into the world of stopwatch sports or field sports, that's where these supplements can have a greater effect because the supplements can act on multiple physiological systems in the body. So like I hear people talking all the time about like supplementing beta alanine for hypertrophy training. It's like, well, look at the beta alanine research where the outcome is hypertrophy. The effect is marginal erroring on zero. But when you, take beta alanine in the context of like repeated sprint performance or field sports because of that large increase in buffering capacity which isn't really an adaptation that you're looking for in bodybuilding there's a large advantage conferred to field sport athletes or like stopwatch sports athletes and again bodybuilders would never literally would never cherry pick studies like that to say oh look this is effective and you know leave out what it's effective for but i think that's a lot of what happens when we talk about supplements for bodybuilders there's a lot of a lot of cherry picking of the evidence like oh you know creatine increases vertical jump performance so therefore good for squatting like oh hey i mean it's, i don't know it's funny you say that because there, there is a decent amount of literature in um resistance training with like hypertrophy and strength outcomes but a lot of times most of the research is not and it's like most of the time the research is in um time to exhaustion time trial on a bike or wind gates um, or something like that. And they they bill it as like, oh, well, you know, it's similar energy systems are being affected by the supplement. And they're correct that similar energy systems are being affected, but the outcomes are far, far different. Like the outcome of, you know, improving anaerobic power via supplementation with beta alanine carnitine whatever it may be is very different than looking at muscular hypertrophy as an outcome of improving anaerobic capacity by you know getting two or three additional reps per workout over the course of six months like there are very few studies that say you know if I get one to three additional repetitions on bench press over the course of a 16 week intervention, my chest will grow X amount over the control group. Like, I don't know of any study that looks at anything like that. What is that even like two or three reps a week over 16 weeks? 
Like you're doing 32 to 48 <laughs> extra repetitions. An extra so. workout. An extra what? workout. It's so an extra workout. Like, really <laughs> and then, like also, you know, you could even think of it from the standpoint of what if those additional reps um, increase my need for uh, my time to recovery. You know, so then what if I instead of, uh, you know, it either makes my next workout less effective or if I could figure out exactly exactly how much time I needed of recovery, what if it extended by an extra day? So it actually ends up being less training sessions over that time period or something. I don't know. Just a way. And to what if the, you know, 20 minutes per day once every three weeks that you spend stressing about the fact that you forgot to take your creatine today, what if that additional stress impacts your recovery to the point where, you know, it ends up being a wash and you laugh, but there are people out there that are like, yo, like I forgot my pre-workout today or it like, it wasn't like hanging over the scoop by the usual amount. And that's why I misgrooved my top set. And that's why I should just go home and cry and, you know, beat my dog, whatever these crazy people do. I've been there with like protein shake mixed in bag, drinking it right after, or like, uh, like almost having a panic attack because I'm like, I eat every two hours and like, I can't eat until three or four hours. Like, (laughs) that's, that's the research that we need to do. The stress from making bodybuilders miss meals, assess that versus a control group in terms of recovery and performance. That's yeah. a hilarious study to think about. We got to call up Kevin Hall. We got to use the lab at the NIH <laughs> to, to make this happen. Kevin, I've got an idea. Please don't call this number. How did you get my number? How did you get my email? <laughs> Kevin, I have my ways. All right. What do you guys think? One more question or should we wrap it up there? I think we maybe got, we got time for one more. You think? No. All right. Paul doesn't. So we're going. Um, All right. So the next question is an exercise selection question. And I like it. Um, I think there's a good amount of nuance here. Um, It comes from at Papa Bear underscore 1991. Yo, birth year brothers. Papa Bear. Same page. Getting old. Feeling real old, aren't we? Oof. Almost 30. 30 next year. Papa Bear. We're going to be Papa Bears soon. Um, All right. The question is, it's actually not a question. It's uh, uh, just a sentence, but I'm going to put a question mark at the end of it. Exercises for traps besides shrugs. So what kind of exercises would you use except for for shrugs? So shrugs are really good for targeting those upper fibers of the traps. But what if I'm trying to hit that hashtag back thickness? Mm. Paul? Once yeah. off. No, hit it. I mean, you you hit it perfectly. That the traps are more complex than just these things. So yeah, I mean, uh, rowing variations. What are they called? What are those called? Where you lift almost like a Y? What the hell are you talking about? Front raises? Y raises? Um, Pullovers? Forget what it's called. No, yeah, I mean, <sighs> a pullover. Maybe like Y raises. No, 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 no. You're you're lifting. Maybe oh. Y raises because because those fibers in the lower traps pull. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I know what you're you know saying. What yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. So, um, you could do uh, shrugging variations where your torso is in a different position or whatever. But yeah, man, I don't know. Um, he's probably asking about like the actual trap. I would guess. 
And I, I just I don't think there's anything like better for that than shrugs. I mean, I, the, the cool thing, though, that I will say is uh, there was a point where like years ago, like my first I've been lifting like what, 12, 13 years, my first few years of training, I did shrugs religiously and got like pretty big traps and I haven't had to touch them, like intentionally touch them directly ever since because I, and I, I believe that that's just because you use them in so many other circumstances that they maintain muscle really well. So when you're carrying things, deadlifting, RDLing, when you're doing your rowing, all that stuff. Like even, even in a lateral race, you're getting a little bit of trap activation at the top of a, of a lateral sure. race and people love their lateral raises. So you're getting a good amount of those. in. I think with questions like this about, you know, choosing exercise selection for a muscle group is you have to look at like what the muscle group actually does. And like Paul said, with those upper trap fibers, they really only do one thing and that's elevation of the scapula. So when you're choosing an exercise, you have to choose an exercise that elevates the scapula. And there is one of those, and it is a barbell, dumbbell, cable, some variation of just shrugging your shoulders up. So which exercise you choose is almost inconsequential to are you performing that biomechanical action of shrugging your shoulders up? Now, when we get into mid lower trap fibers, now it's a conversation of like what Paul said, like upward downward rotation of the scapula, retraction, protraction. And again, you just want to choose an exercise that does those things. So horizontal rowing is a good idea. Um, something like a full range of motion pull down, assisted pull up will also hit those. Granted that you're getting all the way up into that upward rotation. Man, you cannot undersell the value of just understanding, having a very cursory basic understanding of biomechanics when choosing exercises because it, it really just like simplifies things and you can laugh at people that are like i change my toe angle on leg extensions to hit my outer vastus lateralis like the vastus lateralis is already outer there is no fucking outer of a muscle that's already outer you asshole tell me how you really feel i think (laughs) i think uh Paying attention to what you're doing, obviously, in the gym and what you're feeling goes a long way. Like when you say biomechanics, a lot of people probably like, oh, I'm not going to take the time to like get a fucking biomechanics or kinesiology textbook or an anatomy textbook or whatever. (laughs) But also, I think like as long as you're not like super duper fat, even just like watching yourself in the gym and the way you move, like wearing a tank top to the gym and like seeing like, oh, shit, these are the parts of my back that are moving when I'm doing a uh, pull up or pull down when I'm doing a row, stuff like that. I would have to agree. Jay, did you have anything to add? Uh, I mean, I guess I agree with everything you guys are saying. I think if you, even with the row, I mean, if you're trying to hit your traps, I mean, as your hand kind of travels past your body, your hand really has nowhere else to go except up because your, your elbow just won't sort of infinitely go backwards. It has to come <laughs> up. So, so, I mean, that could hit your traps. But, yeah, I think simplicity is often the best way to go about some of these things and stick with the simple stuff. Oh, um, yeah, huge. Thanks, Jason. Uh, 
But no, uh, what what I was going to say is another thing for the filming is because you'll tell people to row for their traps and then they'll do like elbow super tucked, like close to their body and they'll row like this and hit their lats really well. And that's another reason why I, I try and get a lot of my clients to film stuff so that they can like do that and see like, hey, that's not what I'm asking for. And then I'll tell them to do something different where they're they're hitting them a little better and stuff like that. Sorry, it was just a random thought. I tell people try to squeeze a pencil between your shoulder blades for like upper back rowing, trap rowing. Like if I'm here, like you get you give me these. Like my cue for myself is like when I'm back here, try to squeeze a pencil like between my blades as hard as I can. I think at the end of the day, the eternal question is: Is trapping a hobby? <laughs> All right, that's our cue. End this. <laughs> All right, folks. Like Dom said, that's where we're going to wrap it up today. Thanks for coming by. Another Q&A episode of the Gifted Performance Podcast. As always, I'm going to need you to do those YouTube things. Like, comment, subscribe. I even heard someone the other day say, click the notification bell. I quite literally don't even know what the fuck that means. But there's probably a bell somewhere on your screen. And these other influencers, they say to click it. So I'm contractually obligated to say the same because the algorithm stays fucking your boy. Click As it always, guys, we will see you on the next one. And in the meantime, please do your best to stay gifted. And remember, we love you. Goodbye and good night. Bye.